0: Right off the bat, we know that people really care about water. You look at any opinion poll, there have been series of opinion polls about environmental issues going back decades. All of them say the same thing, which is independent of politics, people care about water. They want clean water, they want safe water, they want affordable water, they they like ecosystem health, and they like to go to wetlands and look at birds and catch fish and swim. And you know, water is a is one of those things that First of all, people care about. And so once people care about something, then then all you need to do to convince them that we ought to invest more money in water infrastructure or we ought to invest more money in research and improving uh, uh, water technology or improve our regulations around water is to explain what those benefits are, to explain how we're really all trying to accomplish those things that people really want.
1: Welcome to What Are We Talking About, a podcast produced by Water Online. Host Jim Laurier of Maisie Injector Company and Adam Tank of Transcend Water, a dynamic boomer millennial combo will help you demystify how to build a better brand for your business, keep current and prospective customers engaged with your company, and ultimately grow your sales they interview some of the most interesting and unique water professionals who have used the art of storytelling to move the needle for themselves and for their organizations.
2: Today, we're excited to have uh, Peter Glick, who's the uh, president emeritus of the Pacific Institute. He's the co-founder and also the author of a new book, The Three Ages of Water. And Peter, I got to know you 20 years ago when I transitioned from different industries to the water space and uh, I used uh, the world's water books that uh, Pacific Institute published every two years and I mean, they were they were valuable. They were my Bible in, in starting into this industry. So I want to thank you for that. It, it's been great to, to really understand the industry based on uh, what, what I learned from
3: from those books.
0: Well, thank you, Jim. It's been it's been that's great to hear. And it's good to be with you today.
3: Thanks. And Peter, I mean, I was formally introduced to you through Jim, but I have known of you and your work for a number of years. It's hard to be in the water industry and not have heard of you. So it really is a pleasure to have you on the show today. And the first question I want to talk to you about is you have chosen to be a fairly prolific author in terms of water conversation. And I'm curious why it was that avenue that you chose, as opposed to something like a documentary or a YouTube channel now or social, anything like that. Why books?
0: Well, Adam, so I'm a, I'm a scientist by training. Um Scientists, maybe this is a gross generalization, aren't necessarily particularly good at communications in general or documentaries or uh, different forms of communication. I happen to to write in part for a living. I like to write about the work that I'm doing, but I also like to communicate about these issues. Um, And I've chosen books and writing because that happens just to be my my strength. Uh, I do think there's a a potential for this kind of presentation, for verbal presentations that people can listen to, for documentaries that people can watch to help them understand. And I certainly hope that people who are better than me in those areas take up these issues because they need to be expressed in every form possible.
2: Great. So Peter, you know, speaking about the book, let, let's talk a little bit about that, the three ages of water that just was released. And yeah. you know, you, you talk about the um past, right, where we were, the present, what's going on now, and then the future. Can you talk a little bit about each one of those aspects of, of of your book?
0: Yeah, so I guess maybe we could start at the beginning with the first age. Uh the idea of the first age was to try and understand the role that water has played in not just human history but further back the evolution of our solar system where water on the planet came from uh, the role that water played in the evolution of our species and our ability as homo sapiens to manipulate and control and manage the hydrologic cycle uh, which i think was critical to our our success as a species and up until I argue that the first age includes really the first empires, the first intentional large-scale manipulation of water, uh, the need to figure out agriculture and to grow food for growing populations, the the need to build the very first rudimentary dams and aqueducts to store water in dry periods, in wet periods, so we could use it for dry periods, to to move water from where we got, got it to where we wanted it. Um, the first... Institutions around water, uh, and uh, even the first uh, water conflicts; the, those are all part of what I describe as the first age of water.
3: And as you think about this, this storytelling around water, uh, specifically in this book. What are some of the, the the methods that you're using to tell water's story in a way that might be different than the way other people have heard about it historically or the way that they're currently consuming information about water?
0: Yeah. So what uh, part of this is a, a science story, you know, what, where did water come from? You know, how, how did the very first molecules of uh, of water appear? The first elements of hydrogen and oxygen that we now know is is water. Ah, uh, part of it is science around the evolution of humanity and the role that Homo sapiens uh, played in managing and and uh, dealing with water resources. But but part of it is stories of history. Uh, it's stories of the first cultures that dealt, dealt with water, the first communities that realized that they had to manage and manipulate water in order to grow enough food to survive or to build the first infrastructure. Uh, it's stories of the first scientists who learned what water-related diseases were, and then other scientists who then developed the technologies that we've all benefited from in terms of purification of water and and collecting and treating wastewater. So part of it is science and part of it is history, part of it is personal stories. Um uh, I, I, I loved writing this book just from a personal point of view. I really wrote it for me. Uh, but I <laughs> but I, I think it helps tell the story of water in a more comprehensive way.
2: Yeah. So why don't you tell us some of the stories about the second age of of water, uh, Peter?
0: Yeah. So the second age of water, I argue happened when basically we started to outgrow uh, the early cultures, the early civilizations, the early need to to manage water. We needed to deal with growing populations and growing economies and growing demands for water. And it was a period, the Islamic golden age in the nine hundreds and the, the revolution of the Renaissance with art and science and technology uh, that helped us develop the modern systems that we have today. Uh, The story of John Snow when in the 1850s, terrible terrible cholera outbreaks, which had been sweeping over the world for for decades, for for even longer. uh, John Snow figured out finally that cholera was a water-related disease. It wasn't transmitted by air or contaminated food or contact with people. It was a water-related disease. And that's a remarkable story from London in the 1850s about how he figured that out and how that led to uh, another John, a guy named John Leal in Jersey City in New Jersey in the early 1900s, who had to deal with a typhoid outbreak in Jersey City and realized that he could, for the very first time, bring together the science of water purification and build systems that could kill water-related diseases, prevent water-related diseases, provide safe water and sanitation to Jersey City, in this case, uh, a, tech, a set of technologies that he implemented pretty quickly. But within a few years, every major city in the United States was imitating. And you know, if you look at the data, this is the science in me speaking, if you look at the data for water-related diseases, it's a curve that just plunges off the charts. We Once we did that, cholera and dysentery and typhoid stopped. We, we wiped them out in the United States. Uh, of course, they're still prevalent in many parts of the world. The, the second age that brought enormous benefits to us hasn't necessarily reached everyone. Uh, but those are some of the stories of the many,
3: many stories I tell
0: in the second age.
3: As you're speaking to these stories, it's very clear that you have an innate capacity to be able to communicate these things in a compelling way verbally now i'm sure that the same is true for in the in the book as well and as folks are listening to this podcast you know it's a lot of people that are out there selling products and services related to water or wastewater treatment and the management of water can you help them think through how to find those com- those compelling stories and how to tell those stories in a compelling way for the betterment of their own product or service or business? Well, the, the wonderful part of that is that right off
0: the bat, we know that people really care about water. You look at any opinion poll, there have been series of opinion polls about environmental issues going back decades. All of them say the same thing, which is independent of politics, people care about water. They want clean water, they want safe water, they want affordable water, they they like ecosystem health and they like to go to wetlands and look at birds and catch fish and swim. And you know, water is a is one of those things that first of all people care about. And so once people care about something, then then all you need to do to convince them that we ought to invest more money in water infrastructure or we ought to invest more money in research and improving. Uh, uh, water technology or improve our regulations around water is to explain what those benefits are, to explain how we're really all trying to accomplish those things that people really want, how to provide safe water and sanitation for everyone on the planet, how to restore natural ecosystems while still growing the food that we need and producing the energy that we need, doing the things that we want. Um, And that transition from... The strategies that we used around water in the 20th century, and the 19th century and earlier, they have to shift. They have to change to evolve with with the times, with our understanding of what's important and our understanding of what we want. Right.
2: So you do a good job of, uh, you know, telling the benefits of the second age of water and then also the unintended consequences of that age. Right. Right. Um, uh, disinfection byproducts because we use chlorine in, in the extent we do to you know to to kill viruses and bacteria can you tell us what you're looking forward to for the future you do a good job of putting that as a third age can you tell us a little bit about that Peter
0: yeah so the second age basically is a time when we developed the technologies and the economic approaches and the institutions and the markets to to do the things that we want around water it, it was the time when we invented we learned how to build really big dams and aqueducts not a few kilometers long out of dirt, but, but hundreds of kilometers long or longer out of concrete and to pump water over mountains uh, to deal with water-related diseases and water purification. Uh, but as as you note, and as I described in the book, all of those benefits of the second age also had some unintended consequences, things that we didn't know about or care about that are now causing us heartburn and serious problems, the uh, the uh, failure to provide safe water and sanitation to everyone on the planet, even though that's not a technological problem, it's not really an economic problem, it's an institutional problem, and we've failed to meet those basic needs, what I call water poverty in the book. Uh, the ecological consequences of the second age, where we didn't know or we didn't understand or we didn't care about the impacts of our water policies on the environment. You know, we took water out of those systems. We dried up our rivers. We paved over our wetlands. We dumped our pollutants back into the environment. And we didn't know or we didn't care about those consequences until our rivers started catching on fire and our fish started dying. And the environmental movement came about, in part because of our water problems, Uh, political conflicts over water. One of the things I do at the Pacific Institute is maintained something called the water conflict chronology, which is a database of violence over water. Going back to that very first age, first water war that happened in 2400 BC in ancient Mesopotamia, a conflict over access to irrigation canals and, and irrigation water between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. But we see conflicts growing today over water resources, a lot of violence, attacks on water systems, the use of water as a weapon. And then maybe the worst unintended consequence of the second age is climate change. You know, we know that the climate's changing. We know that humans are responsible. And of course, we know that water resources are among the most vulnerable and the most serious consequences of climate change. And those unintended consequences are what really is forcing us to think about doing things differently, to moving toward what I call the third age of water, which I I believe and I write in the book will be a positive future uh, that will move towards sustainability that i know we can i argue in the book that that we can and that we will but whether we will fast enough remains to be seen
1: you're listening to the water we talking about podcast we'll be right back after this short break this podcast is produced by water online the leading web-based community for water and wastewater professionals. Showcasing the knowledge and authority of industry thought leaders, Water Online provides actionable content from vendors you can trust. And now, back to today's podcast.
3: It has been said by, I'm not sure by whom, truth be told, but it has been said, I can verify that, that everyone has a book in them. Everyone has a book in them, but I imagine that not a lot of people feel that way personally. They don't know that they have what's, what's you know, they don't have enough juice, if you will, to get a book out into the world, or maybe just don't have the interest or think they don't have the time. So for the folks that are hearing you say, you're a prolific writer, you're telling these compelling stories, you know, the stories that you tell will make a difference in the world of water, undoubtedly. And they're going, that's cool, but I, I can't do that. What's a starting point to sort of usher them in to telling water's story in a way that might be a little bit easier to stomach than, you know, putting out putting out a full book?
0: Well, so I'm not I'm not, you know, not everybody has to tell a story, but I do think there's a role for everybody in the water world. Um, I do believe this positive future is is possible. I I see all around me success stories of innovative people, innovative technology, innovative financial efforts to to solve water problems. Farmers growing more food with with less water. Uh, Regulatory agencies who are helping the transition toward more efficient appliances, water using appliances. Industries who are working on corporate stewardship around water to understand their water risks, but also play a better role with communities about their own water use. Again, there are these success stories everywhere. And I argue in the book that We have to scale them up. Um, And it doesn't necessarily mean people, everybody has to write those stories, but it does mean that everybody has to be involved in one way or another. Uh, There's a role for uh, international organizations. There's a role for national governments. There's a role for state governments and private utilities and corporations, but there's also a role for individuals to understand where their water comes from, to vote for, for their local water representatives to be their local water representatives uh to to pressure the local companies that they work with and for uh, or whose products they buy to think more about their consequences for for water use there's a really there's a there are a million roles to, to be played here you know writing writing a book is just this it's just one of them and it's maybe not even the most important one.
2: One of the things, Peter, that uh, I always enjoyed, and, you know, I always looked at the conflict uh, conflict uh, list that you put together, but I also enjoyed the uh, movie list of, of water, uh, uh, anything that had to do with water. Can you talk a little bit about
0: that? Yes. So, on the first point, uh, we're actually just about to release an update to the water conflict chronology. We haven't done one for about a year and a half. Okay. Um, and we're going to be adding probably 350 more entries, a very large number, unfortunately, of examples where water has been a weapon or a casualty or a trigger of conflict. Um, But yes, I also, you know, I love movies. I I love to watch movies and being a water wonk, um, I'm constantly seeing references to water in in movies. And I've published a list of water-related movies where, uh, you know, going back to the early... Uh, 1900s, when some of the early Westerns had classic stories about uh, the ranchers who were fighting for water rights uh, with John Wayne. I mean, there are a lot of classic ones, but also the apocalyptic sci-fi movies where, uh, you know, some catastrophe has befallen the planet. And often it's a water-related catastrophe where, where we become a desert planet or we're fighting over access to water. Um, there is a list of water movies on my website at, at uh, lick dot com, um, and I'm constantly adding new ones. But they're actually a remarkable number, really, from the apocalyptic, sci-fi, dystopian futures uh, to all sorts of social commentaries.
3: As you talk about the the story of water, you know, I'm hearing you pull from obviously his, history and I'm hearing you pull from different sources so you know, maybe first person and maybe other researchers that you work with it could be movies. You also talked earlier about how and Jim and I joke about this frequently that the engineers and the scientists aren't necessarily the best communicators, at least typically we'll say. But you somehow managed to overcome this hurdle at some point in your career because you do tell compelling stories what what are you learning or what have you learned or what might you point someone towards to say if you want to learn how to be a better communicator a better storyteller around water here's what you should take a look at
0: well first of all thank you I I, you know I appreciate (laughs) the idea that I might be a, a decent communicator on these issues um you know scientists and engineers and I have an engineering degree and I'm a scientist by training you know it's not an expectation That scientists will be public communicators, and most most of them aren't, and it's not it's not necessary that everybody be. Um, But but I do think it's important for those people who want to and are willing to and and try to communicate these issues to move science from the laboratory or from the computer to the public arena. Uh, Science education is a really important thing. The more we understand about the world around us, and the more we understand about the problems but also the solutions that that are available to us, the more likely we are to, to take action on those things, the more likely we are to get our politicians and policymakers to, to move in the right direction. I, I'm not sure the best advice for how to do that. I, you know I, I do I've done a lot of speaking over the years. I like to do that. Um, it's something that I was fortunate enough to be in an organization, the Pacific Institute where where that was appreciated and supported. You know, not all universities support scientists to communicate publicly. They want scientists to publish in peer-reviewed journal articles, and then you know, I do plenty of that. But that's not, you know, that's that's not necessarily enough. Um, I would just encourage people who, you know, feel like they could tell stories or they have a story to tell, to tell it. And there's so many different media out there. You know, there's so many different ways to do it. We you know we've talked about it. you can write, you can write, you can. You can do podcasts, you can do documentaries, you can work with your local communities to just tell stories. There are lots of local storytellers who are wonderful. Um, so th- there's no there's no single avenue for that.
2: So Peter, the conclusion of the book, and I was quite pleased to see this, was very hopeful, right? In, in terms of where we can go, uh, humanity can go. Can you talk a little bit about that? What you see um, from a hopeful future?
0: Yeah, know, the three ages are a prehistoric past, uh, uh, the challenges we face today, and as I describe in the book, a hope for the future. And I actually tell a story in the book from the year 2099, looking back, saying, we've solved our water problems, and here's what it was like in the dark old ages, and here's what we did to solve our water problems to bring us to this this more positive, sustainable future. Um, and And of course, that's a story. I don't know if that's the way it's going to be in 2099, and I'm not going to be around to see it. Um, But I do believe, and I argue in the book, that this positive future is possible. Uh, And that if we had a choice, we wouldn't go to that dark, dystopian, dismal future that we can all of us can see pretty clearly based on where we are today. And my point in the book is precisely that we have that choice. We have a choice about the future that we go to, depending on The policies we implement the investments we make today the decisions we make as communities and corporations and and industries and governments um and simply we need to make the right choices we need to figure out how to see the successes all around us and to scale them up faster than they're happening now um i'm not naive enough to 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 dispute the fact that there's lots of bad news that's going to happen between where we are today and this positive future but i know that we can reach that positive future if we move in the right direction
3: speaking of choices peter we are coming up on the end of the show and we always have one final question for our guests so you will have one final choice to make which is how you answer this question that we ask everyone that comes on so jim and i have found an airplane and behind that airplane we get to tow a banner that's got maybe a sentence or two worth of words, and we're gonna pick you up and fly you around the world in front of every single water professional, their home, and they're gonna see this banner. What do you want this banner to say?
0: Well, it might be a long banner, but I wanted to say we can solve our water problems, look around, see the successful innovative people and organizations doing things, and do more of them
2: great great peter this has been a great uh, podcast interview i know that the audience is going to really get a lot of benefit from it so thank you so much for being our guest
0: well i appreciate having me on and it's great questions and uh, uh i appreciate your commitment to the world of water